Well, we have today Psalms 29 and 30. And you'll see at the beginning of Psalm 30, it's headed a song for the dedication of the temple by David. Now, you might have heard of a Christadelphian in the 19th century called J.W. Thurtle, and he wrote a book, a very uh, academic book, called the, uh, the Titles of the Psalms. And the point that he made was that, in his opinion, a lot of the headings of the Psalms are actually in the wrong place, and that a lot of the headings of Psalms actually apply to the previous Psalm. And Psalms 29 and 30 are uh, one of his parade examples, and he makes the point that if you read Psalm 30, as we, we just have, it doesn't really uh, seem at all relevant for being a song for the dedication of the temple. But Psalm 29 would fit that perfectly, because in Psalm 29, for example, uh, verse 9, uh, in his temple everything says glory. That it's all about a, a, a praise of God's glory and of his word and of his temple. And the idea of God giving strength to his people, blessing his people with peace out of the temple. Um, verse 10, Yahweh sat enthroned at the flood, the idea of God's throne, as it were, being, uh, being manifested on earth in the, in the temple, it all kind of fits in. So I just mentioned that for you to bear in mind, and also bear in mind that the headings of the Psalms, I think, are also inspired. In fact, at least one of them is quoted in the New Testament as Scripture. And that's why you read in the Russian Bible and uh, quite, quite a lot of Bibles in languages other than English. You'll notice that in the Psalms, in a lot of them, they're one verse ahead. They're, there's one verse out. And that's because they treat the, the heading of the Psalm as verse 1 of the Psalm, because it's inspired. I'll just mention that um, for your... Um, just to tuck away in your mind as you're studying the Psalms. So I want to focus really on Psalm 29, and I would suggest that this is a song for the dedication of the temple by David. Now, of course, David didn't uh, build the temple. There was no temple <clears throat> in the time of David, but you remember that he wanted so strongly to build the temple, and he prepared for it, and he even here has prepared a song or a psalm, uh, to be sung at the dedication of it. So he looked forward to this. This was his great uh, theme towards the end of his life, that the temple was to be built. Why was he so enthusiastic for the building of the temple? Well, I think that in the promises to David, in Second Samuel 7, etc., there's a connection being made between the rule of Messiah and Messiah building a house. David's son was to build a house for God's name. And of course his hope was that that promised great descendant would in fact be Solomon. And that Solomon was going to fulfill all that by, by building a, a temple. Which of course he did, but that was not the ultimate uh, fulfillment as, as we know. And Solomon went wrong, etc. And God doesn't ultimately want a, a temple. But God was, was pleased to go along with this idea of, of David. So, in his mind, the time when the temple would be built was the time of his great son uh, reigning as the son of God and some kind of kingdom of God situation being on the earth. And he wanted to try to bring that about as best he could. And I don't think he was mistaken in that. In the same way as we can, in a sense, hasten the coming 
of the day of the Lord, uh, as we read in, in 2 Peter 3, by our repentance, by our way of life, and the gospel shall go into all the world, and then shall the end come, the Lord Jesus said. So we can hasten, in a sense, the coming of God's kingdom uh, by our effort in one way or another. That is not to glorify works, but it is also to just remind us that God has set things up so that a lot depends upon us. It is over to us. He is not going to force it in that sense. So David's zeal to bring about God's kingdom on earth, as he understood it within the, uh, the frames and maybe the limits of his understanding, is a great example to us, really. And, you know, I'm a great believer in trying to get the message of the gospel into all the world, because then shall the end come. And that is, in a sense, I think, in the spirit of David, wanting to hasten the coming of the messianic kingdom by seeing his great son building a temple. And so he prepares for it as best he could, even though he, he realized it would not be in his lifetime, to the extent of writing this psalm for the dedication of the temple. So I think there he is envisaging, verse 2, uh, Yahweh being worshipped, as he puts it, in holy array. He imagines the priests, etc., dressed up beautifully, dedicating this, this temple. And yet, seven times in this psalm, he talks about Yahweh's voice, the word of God. And he glorifies God's word. Well, we know from Psalm 119 that he loved God's word, and yet he also loved the idea of a temple being built. So I think that his idea of the temple was that the word of the Lord would go out from that temple in Jerusalem, as we have it in Isaiah 2, and that God would be, as it were, enthroned there, as he was, verse 10, Yahweh sat enthroned at the flood, in the same way as God was in control at the time of the flood. He was absolutely enthroned, even though there was chaos all around on, on the earth. And all the things that Yahweh's voice is described as doing here, for the most part, uh, are, in a sense, you could say destructive. Breaking the cedars of Lebanon, verse 5, into pieces. And then, uh, verse 9, he strips the forests bare. The idea is of a great big wind ripping through the forest so strong that that voice makes the deer carve. I understand that to mean that they go into premature labor out of fear of this great uh, noise and voice and wind that is sweeping through. Verse 8, the voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. So the word of God is being likened to a very strong wind. And of course you know that the Hebrew word ruach means both wind and spirit. And we're encouraged to think that way by verse 3. Yahweh's voice is on or over the waters. That's got to be an allusion back to Genesis 1 verse 2, where we're told that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God was on the waters, brooded or hovered over the waters, and by his word, creation as we know it came about. God spoke and it was done. God said let there be light, and, and there was. So I think that David's vision is of a, a temple um, with God enthroned in it, the world in chaos, but there being peace for God's people, as he concludes verse 11, 
Yahweh will give strength to his people, he will bless his people with peace, even though the rest of the planet is uh, being uh, not destroyed in a, in a negative sense, but it's being radically rearranged. And God is there enthroned. So this is his vision of, of the kingdom. And in essence, that is right. When the Lord Jesus comes back, that is what's going to happen. There will be a new creation. The physical planet will not be destroyed, but everything will be radically rearranged, let's put it that way, and God will ultimately be enthroned on earth. This is the idea at the end of Revelation, that God himself comes to dwell amongst men on earth, and that his throne, if you like, uh, shifts from where it is now to this earth. It's almost too uh, amazing to think that we are such a tiny planet amongst billions, zillions of planets God would decide to come and live here with us. And th this is the wonder, really, of the Gospel, that the only begotten Son of God, he never you know, had a load of sons in the past, different uh, yeah, sons, and well, th this is just one of them. Uh, the, the idea is that Jesus was the only begotten Son, the firstborn of God. And he was you know, not a kangaroo, not a Martian, or somebody who lives on another planet. He was a man. He was a human. This is the wonder of it all, of God's passionate involvement with us. The huge scale of the cosmos of existence is maybe just to show us the scale of his special love for human beings. And that means for you and me. Not only for you and me, but for all human beings, including those who irritate us and those that we can't stand. Now, the idea then is that the, the word of God or the voice of God is extremely powerful. Verse 4 says it. Yahweh's voice is powerful. Yahweh's voice is full of majesty. And the allusion is to what happened in creation. The spirit brooding on the waters, hovering over the waters. Verse 3 here, Yahweh's voice is on the waters. What happened as it's presented in Genesis 1, I think, is not so much a creation ex nihilo. That is, there was absolutely nothing, and then God spoke, and all this stuff just sort of came into existence. The idea is that, as we read in Genesis 1, uh, verse 2, that the earth was without uh, form and empty. Darkness was on the surface of the deep. And then God started to speak, let there be light, and there was light, uh, etc. So, what happened in creation, I would say, was a radical reorganizing. That is what Genesis 1 seems to be saying. Effectively, it was creation, but I'm saying that I don't think that the Genesis record is talking about creation out of nothing. Uh, quite clearly, verse 2 of Genesis 1, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was on the surface of the deep. So, you know, it was there, but then God starts this radical creation or recreation on the earth. Now, that is what uh, David sees as happening when the Lord Jesus comes back. And, of course, in Genesis 1, the whole theme is creation through a word, through God's word, that God spoke and all, this, all these things happened. And in the, New, in the New Testament, we have Paul's great doctrine, really, of the new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5:17, that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the same huge power 
which was released through God's Word, is also available to us in changing us. Not, I think, creating something ex nihilo, that is, just creating a totally new person from nothing, but of rearranging who we are. Because we will each personally be in God's kingdom, not identical to each other, but in the same way as we are each unique, so we shall uniquely be forever. But I really like this idea that God's word rearranges and recreates. Because we have that sense that, you know, I don't want to end, I don't, not like sort of nirvana in, in Hinduism or Buddhism, whereby you basically just cease to exist. No, we will continue. But of course we don't want to continue as we now are. But there will be this uh, dramatic rearrangement of us, and that is going on right now. That if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the same huge power, colossal power that was unleashed in creation, will be unleashed and is unleashed in our lives. That's, as I keep saying, why creation was through a word. That was the method that God used. Creation through a word. He spoke and it was done. And as I say, the, the rearrangement of what already was. So then, here David sees this as happening really in the, in the kingdom of God. That the cedars will be broken, um, it's flashes of lightning, etc. And that then is what we really have to, to look forward to. Not only in our lives now, but when the Lord Jesus returns. And of course, how does God's voice operate now? Well, we cannot think of that question, really, uh, without thinking about the Bible. And, uh, of course, I'm not saying that that's the only way in which God works. But, all the same, there is something unique in that book that we hold in our hands. But this is not a book like any other book. This is not just a useful guidebook and some interesting history. There is something here unique. This is the Word of God, and the way that he has preserved it is quite amazing. And so, to put it mildly, read your Bible. Because there's a big tendency these days, in the world and in the Brotherhood, and I believe in the lives of nearly all of us, certainly in mine, to read stuff about the Bible rather than the Bible text itself. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with reading stuff about the Bible. It's better we do that than read, you know, all the garbage that there is to read about other things. But, ultimately, the Bible is God's Word to us. And, really, we must read it for ourselves. Now, I, I'm sorry to sound so sort of old school, but uh, on this one, I am, I am old school. Uh, carry a Bible around with you, little pocket Bible. If you, you know, if you really haven't got one, little pocket Bible. I understand not everyone who hears this uh, has or can get one easily. Honestly, send me an email, and we got those little NEV pocket Bibles, uh, New Testament. Uh, I'll send you one, and that's a promise. So then, 
that's not the only way, of, of course. I mean, these days, the, do I say it, the younger generation, and not only them, are very much walking around with entertainment all the time. That, right, if, if reading uh, words on paper is not your scene, okay, you know, God's Word is available, as you know, in all sorts of ways. What do you want? MP3? Do, do you want it on your handheld device? How do you want it? It's there, and it's available. And as I say, my concern is that by not reading or listening to God's Word for ourselves, actually engaging with the text with your own ears, eyes, or whatever, I really believe that we are missing out a huge amount. And there's nothing that can be done for us in that. It, you can't get someone else to uh, write some clever book explaining it all. You have got to engage, ultimately, with God's Word for yourself. So then, <clears throat> we read um, yeah, in, in verse 8, Yahweh's voice shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. You have that uh, again in verse 5, the parallel between the voice of Yahweh and Yahweh himself. To put that in John's terms, in John chapter 1, the word was God. The word is God. And I'm not saying that sort of God equals the Bible and that is the end, but all the same, there is this parallel between voice or word of God and God himself. And of course that's how it is, isn't it? You, you know how irritating it is when you're talking to somebody and you know that they're not really listening to you. That they are, well, they have a certain image of you they got from somebody else, or their mind is somewhere else, and you're like, look, I'm telling you something really important about myself. And, you know, can you listen? Lend me your undivided. And yeah, this is, of course, God's attitude to us. And God is speaking to us through the Bible. And there is, a, I think, a, a sort of um, a mutual relationship between God and man in the sense that we pray to God, and we, we talk to God in prayer, and there can be the impression that God is some kind of silent, that this is a one-way conversation, but it isn't. And how then does God speak to us? Well, of course, he speaks in many ways. He, he can speak through circumstance, through encounter with people, etc. But God does also speak to us, obviously, through his word. Now, if you are reading the Bible daily, regularly, you will... Not immediately, but you will begin to hear his voice coming back to you. That as you pray to God, and prayer is of course not simply request, firing off a bunch of ten things or whatever that we would like, in Jesus' name, amen. But, you know, you read these psalms that we've got here, wonderful insight really into the mind of David and into what godly people should pray about and how they should pray. And you look at the number of requests in these psalms, it's not that many. It's more reflection, it's more telling God your life and your situation. And he responds to that. He really does. And one of the way, ways he obviously does that is through our Bible reading. So when you read, pray to God for him to speak to you and you know, the old uh, words of Samuel. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That make me listen. David says this author Psalm 119, open my eyes to your word. 
So yes, this is an appeal for for Bible reading, but of course it it can never just stay there, just just as a cold mechanical thing. That will not um, release the the great power of of God to us. It, it is only within that context of this mutual two-way relationship. Now we're told there in verse uh, four, Yahweh's voice is powerful. Verse 11, Yahweh will give strength to his people. Strength, power, it's the same word. So in what sense will he give strength or power to his people? Well, through the medium of his word, through this new creation. So if you have that sense, as I believe every spiritually minded person does, that I want to be better, I want to be different, but not so different that I don't exist anymore, I want to be me as I am, but, you know, rearranged, recreated. This is exactly what God is out to do. And this is ultimately what's going to happen to this physical planet when the Lord Jesus returns. But it's happening now in the lives of all God's people who are responding to his word. Finally, then, in verse 11, there's a parallel. Yahweh will give strength to his people. Yahweh will bless his people with peace. So the strength or the power that's given through his word is the blessing of peace. Now, in Acts 3, at the end of Acts 3, 25-26, where Peter talks about the blessing promised to Abraham, he says that that blessing is to turn away every one of us from our iniquities. So the ultimate blessing is forgiveness and salvation. You do a study on, on peace in the Bible, it's nearly always peace with God. The peace that comes from forgiveness and from the barrier of sin being got out of the way. So then, this is the picture that David envisaged. Okay, the world in, in turmoil, being rearranged, etc., recreated, but God's people having peace and salvation centered in uh, God enthroned amongst them. Just as it was at the flood, as he says, verse 10, Yahweh sat enthroned at the flood, there was all this chaos going on, but God was quite calm and, and was absolutely uh, enthroned in power and control. And he sits as king forever, verse 10. So then, this is our ultimate end. The ultimate peace is not having plenty of money, having health, having you know, nice things in life, nice car, nice place to live, etc., peaceful family situation that the ultimate blessing is peace with God and that is actually what was promised to Abraham and that is the ultimate strength and power that God through the medium of his word and his son of course is eager to share with us